This is Trump Watch. I'm John Wiener, live in L.A. on 90.7 KPFK, talking about what Trump is actually doing, not just what he's tweeting. Later in this hour, we remember Gary Stewart, the popular culture maven and political activist. But first, the big news. Attorney General Bill Barr finally released the text of the Mueller report today, or at least a lot of it. For comment, we turn, of course, to John Nichols. He's national political co correspondent for the nation and author most recently of the book, Horsemen of the Trumpocalypse. John, welcome back. Man, I think the Trumpocalypse arrived. <laughs> I think so. Well, just to be brief here, the key, the key takeaway for me, Mueller has assembled the facts, uh, 10 grounds for finding the president guilty of obstruction of justice. Uh, but he says it's not his job to hold Trump accountable. That's the job of Congress, he says, and us, the American public. So uh, the release of this redacted report, he suggests, is not the beginning of the, is, is, is the beginning of that process. It's not the end. It's up to Congress now to take this report and, and do their duty. Is that the way you see it? Pretty much, uh, although, you know, John, you make it sound kind of clinical there. Uh, I, I, it's got the president saying the F word. Mm. Cool. I mean, this is like the Mueller report is cool. Um, and it's like fascinating and damning and worthy of reading, except yeah. for the redacted parts, which are substantial. Um but, you know, knowing how you went through school, John, I'm sure that you enjoyed redacted sections get through them quicker. Um, but this is, I mean, this is the unexpected thing. Because when William Barr, who's really a lamentable human being, by all evidence, uh, when William Barr did his four-page summary, assumed that, you know, I mean, yeah, he was going to skew it a little bit toward the president who gave him a job and toward his own ideological sentiments, which are very much on the side of an imperial presidency. But you thought he would deal within the realm of reality. And so that his little four-page summary that he put out last month would at least give us some sense of what the Mueller report was. That's not the case. The Mueller report is a damning document that is pretty much, uh, at least on a number of fronts, not on every front, but on a number of fronts, what I think the president's critics anticipated it would be, and also notably what the president feared it would be. There's tremendous documentation of uh, troublesome issues related to uh, Russian interference in the U.S. election of 2016, much more than the uh, bar summary would have suggested, and there's, frankly, stunning, I, I, I'll try to search for the, a good enough word to describe overwhelming evidence of an effort to obstruct investigations into yeah. the president's wrongdoing and to that of the, his associates. And th this is probably why Trump, we learned from the the released portions of the Mueller report, Trump, when Mueller was appointed, Trump said, oh, my God, this is terrible. This is the end of my presidency. I'm screwed, except he didn't say screwed. He said the F word. This is the end of my presidency was what Trump said when Mueller was appointed. So uh, he knew what the evidence was against him that was going to be uncovered. And we do see a lot of that evidence today. 
Yeah, really. And, I mean, it's it's rare that I say that the president was right and maybe <laughs> he's um, But, in fact, you know, give the guy his due. He looked at this and he said, um, at the very least, at the, in the most generous interpretation of the line that you quoted, the president was suggesting that he was going to be stuck with a special counsel's inquiry and the play out of that inquiry for the rest of his presidency. That's the most generous interpretation. The darker one is that he knew full well that any investigation into him would reveal stunning levels of wrongdoing. What's especially interesting, though, is that the certainly the second section, the major section that we're talking about as regards obstruction, reveals that he made real the statement uh, that you just quoted. He did things after he said that, that you basically built a case, I would argue, yeah. for his impeachment. Yeah, it's amazing. And, yeah. And, and this is the important thing. What did he do? He tried to get Mueller fired. Yeah. This is incredible, right? And, and almost certainly by keeping the pressure up to get Mueller fired uh, caused members of his inner circle to leave because they didn't want to be part of a Saturday night massacre. Uh, oh dear, we've lost John on his cell phone. He is. Has... No, no, I'm with you, brother. Okay, come on back. I can hear you. Come on back. I'm here. Okay, John, I can hear you. Okay, can you good. Hear me? Yes, we can hear you. Somebody, someone pressed a button out there in California. <laughs> we were rudely interrupted. Continue, please continue. That's a, no, John, I want you, I want listeners to understand. We just did a, you know, kind of radio performance of the redacted section <laughs> of the report. Thank you very much. You know, incredibly great. Thing. I- I, I appreciate your your emphasizing the that so much of the obstruction occurred after Trump said this is the end of my presidency. You know, uh, obstruction is an issue of intent, and the intent is so clear from this report. Uh, he did yep. so many different ways. He tried to get his his staff, his lackeys, his lawyers. To to fire uh, Mueller, to get rid of the to get the attorney general to do something, to get somebody to get the attorney general to do something, and the one really bright spot for the president that perhaps protects him in this is that in several cases the only reason that there was no obstruction of justice in the end was that his subordinates refused to carry out his orders. That's certainly true of Don McGahn and Jeff Sessions. McGahn said. Don McGahn was his lawyer, said he'd rather resign than commit what uh, he compared to the Saturday Night Massacre of of, Wasik, uh, 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 of Watergate. Uh, so it was only because he was protected by his underlings who refused to carry out his orders that there wasn't uh, a, a clear obstruction of justice, but with the intent is, is crystal clear, don't you think? I think it's, it's stunningly clear, and you understand how bad this is, right? That, uh, you know, a guy who, and I, I'm going to try and be as polite as I can to Jeff Sessions, a scorching racist mm. from the South who actually tried to, you know, prevent African Americans from voting, right? Like a, a really, really, really bad man uh, who has stirred anti immigrant sentiment and just is you know, a terrible, terrible record in his political life. Um, 
And Don McGahn, who in, in a number of appointments has done really, really troublesome, bad stuff. I mean, just no other way to say it except not what I would consider the most reputable figures in Washington said to Donald Trump, Hey man, I don't want to be a part of this. Yeah, <laughs> you know, what yeah. you're doing is bad. <laughs> so this is a this is a measure, quite frankly, of and very seriously, of how extreme the president's behaviors and actions and intentions were. They this is an assault on the Constitution. It's an assault on the rule of law. It is a tremendous abuse of the office of president. All detailed in what I think, if we're honest, John, and we, and we you know, just kind of step back, pause, take a breath, and say, "What is the Mueller report?" It's an impeachment referral. Yeah, it's a, it's essentially a, a and and it wasn't meant for, you know, William Barr, because um, I think anybody in their right mind knows William Barr wasn't going to do anything of value with it. Um, and frankly, it, was, it wasn't meant that way in any sense, no matter who the attorney general was, if it had still been Sessions, if you know, someone else had moved into that position. But clearly, when you read this report, and I've read a lot of it today, uh, what Robert Mueller was saying is that as a special counsel, I've gathered a tremendous amount of information. I've really gone down a, a lot of avenues. It's not my job to prosecute or to proceed beyond the gathering of information. It's my job to give it to the people who can do something with it. Yeah. And clearly his intent was, remember, some of, the, some of this inquiry has led to uh, convictions and investigations and activities by other jurisdictions or by specific jurisdictions, such as the Southern District of New York. There's clearly intersections there. But um, at the heart of the matter, especially as regards obstruction, this is a referral to the Congress of the United States uh, with what I would see as, you know, powerful encouragement to take action. If you've just tuned in, we're speaking with John Nichols of The Nation about the bar version of the Mueller report released today. It suggests Congress should judge whether Trump obstructed justice. Well, we've been talking about everything that we can learn about what Trump did, especially his intent to obstruct justice. Uh, Mueller also makes it clear that there's a lot of things he was unable to find out. In particular, Trump refused to appear in person and answer questions uh, about his state of mind and his uh, actions. He also refused to provide written answers to questions on any of the obstruction topics. He did provide written answers to questions about uh, Russian interference, but more than 30 times he said he didn't remember. And this was the guy who said he had the greatest brain in the Western world, isn't he? Yeah, he goes real vague on some of this. You know, uh, looking, his memory's a little bit like the redacted sections of the report. <laughs> uh, you know, it's like when you get to the really good stuff, and this is an important thing, uh, when you get to the really good stuff, you know, you got somebody on a phone and they're talking to somebody about, you know, some really bad interventions and things that, that point to exactly what we're concerned about. Suddenly a page goes missing. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's like a blacked out page. And, and so just as Trump doesn't, quote unquote, remember, um, you know, what he did as regards Russian interference with the election, so the report itself 
uh, has many key sections that get into this zone, but then, you know, have blacked out pages. That's the intervention, by the way, of Attorney General Barr, not of Robert Mueller. Robert Mueller produced a report that, as best we know, was not redacted, right? And so Mueller presented in what, again, I would refer to as an impeachment referral, uh, a great deal of information about some of these issues that we're talking about. Barr has sought to prevent us from reading that, from seeing that. So now we get to the next and interesting struggle here, which is over-redaction. Yeah. And there's a, several ways to deal with that. One is to fight to you know, remove some of the redaction, to open those pages up for review. The other thing, and this is what Nadler and other people are working on, is to call uh, Mueller and Mueller's associates to testify before Congress and to ask them about some of these things that were redacted. Yeah, I, we, may yet, we may yet get the full picture. Yeah, no, you're absolutely right that if you look closely at where the redactions are, a lot of the redactions are around this discussion of evidence of Trump campaign outreach to WikiLeaks. Uh, supposedly, mm -hmm. and the grounds on which this is redacted is that it uh, pertains to an ongoing uh, investigation. Presumably this uh, is Roger Stone uh, charged with lying about his, uh, his participation in the connection to, uh, between the Trump campaign and WikiLeaks. But we have to wonder uh, whether this is blacked out also to show more than Roger Stone. Uh, maybe uh, other people, maybe the Trump family members, maybe Don Jr., maybe Jared, maybe Ivanka, uh, we'd like to know. Well, uh, I mean, that's sort of the problem with redaction, right? We, we could sit here and speculate all day. Yeah. Um, we'd like to know a little more about um, what's going on there. And, um, uh, you know, it's, here's where it gets interesting. It's just... Uh, to me, it's, it's all those possibilities do come into play, of course. I respect what you're saying. But, but we really don't know. We don't have the answer on, on a host of these issues. And that's why you know, we've got to go deeper. There has to be a better, stronger discussion of all this. Because if there isn't, if we you know, kind of remain stuck in this, in this gray area, um, it, it, there will be immense speculation. And what somebody said today is that even from what we've got, we have the suggestion that they, you know, of course, there's this question of this word collusion, which really, you know, it's not what they're looking at here. They're looking for actual crimes and, and a host of, of uh, actions that go beyond, you know, that sort of vague word collusion. But somebody said today, and I thought this was a good line, they said, at the very least, it, we know that they were collusion curious. <laughs> Great. Right? That they, they had an interest there, and we don't quite know what they did. But, um, you know, enough has been revealed, even in this report as it now stands, that we have to ask ourselves, what comes next? You know, what, what more is there? Yes. And that's relevant not just to Donald Trump and to his associates, it's also, John, really relevant to the functioning of our democracy, because if 
it's in it's in this it's in this exploration of these issues that we determine a lot about how vulnerable our political processes are, uh, not merely to foreign players, but to any player who might, in some sort of covert, uh, potentially lawless manner, want to warp the process uh, on behalf of one candidate or another. And so we, we need to know this stuff, uh, not out of some sort of, not just out of some sort of desire to hold Trump to account, but also out of a recognition that we're about to have a, a presidential election in 2020, and we want to know, you know, where the vulnerabilities are, where the, where the risks are. And Barr himself acknowledges that there have been efforts to, you know, warp the process, to mess with the process. What he won't give us is the full information on, on that warping, on that messing with it. And so uh, it falls to Congress, I think, to make very aggressive demands for much more information. And, and frankly, they're saying that Barr may testify sometime next month and then Mueller later in the month. And I, I don't know about you, John, I, I actually think some of this is a little more urgent than that. And I would <laughs> yes. hope that the Congress, uh, you know, really turns the volume up. It doesn't let this, it doesn't, I, I know that some things take time, but I don't think there's as much necessity to let it drag out. I'd like to see some of these people testifying very quickly. Well, the other big thing we learned today was from Barr's press conference. We learned that Barr sees his role as to be the attorney representing, defending the criminal uh, acts of, uh, of his boss. Uh, my favorite sentence of, his, of William Barr in his press conference today was, quote, apart from whether the acts were obstructive, he went on to say the fact that Trump was frustrated and angry exonerates him from obstruction charges. Apart from whether the acts were obstructive, uh, he forgot <laughs> he forgot to say, well, actually, they were obstructive, and that's because Trump was so frustrated and angry. But, uh, you know, he's, he, he moves too quickly over the heart of the matter there, I think. Well, you know, I mean— if you're really in trouble, you probably want a lawyer like William Barr. Um, and there is simply no question that, as Jamie Raskin, the very able former American University law professor who now serves in Congress, said, um, Barr came across in this press conference sounding an awfully lot like a federal public defender. Yeah. With a, and, and I'll, that's what Jamie said, I'll add on. This is a, another element here with a very, very troubled client. Hmm. Yeah. Uh, you know, l let me just uh, ra also raise the question of the, the media coverage of all of this, because when Barr released that four-sentence summary of the Mueller report a few weeks ago, I, the news media did a really crappy job of reporting. They simply repeated what Barr said. The headline was, no collusion between Trump and the Russians. Nobody was going to be indicted, and then Trump said he had been completely exonerated. We talked to you at that point, and of course, you had what I would call the appropriate amount of skepticism about all that, Not not as a left-winger, but just as a professional journalist. You said at that point, we need to see the full report. Uh, would you say yep. we've seen the full report now? No, <laughs> not yet. But I also did say one other thing. I said we need to see the full report. I always said that from the beginning. The other thing I was very aggressive on is saying, please don't trust William Barr. Yeah. And, and, I, and I, in fact, I think I, 
you got a podcast up with a headline it's along that line. Yeah. And and the reason that I said that is that it's not that I dislike William Barr, although I kind of have a lot, little less respect for him after today because he's just not very good at um, presentation. But the reason that I said that is that William Barr has been a decades-long advocate for the imperial presidency. This is a guy who really believes, no matter whether Trump's in there or Gerald Ford or, you know, George H.W. Bush or Ronald Reagan, whoever's president, Barr believes that president should pretty much be able to do whatever he wants. And that is a very, very dangerous and, frankly, wrong-headed player to have in a position such as this. It's just not right. Um, And you knew where he was headed. You knew what he was going to do. He was going to try and and suggest that obstruction wasn't an issue. And so uh, that's what's happened. We've got a very clear picture of where Barr is coming from on these issues. And, uh, you know, it's frankly, well, I'll say two things. Number one, the guy should either resign or be impeached. He should not be occupying the presidency at the, or the attorney general's office at this point. There's simply no question of that. But, but beyond that, um, people should not take seriously uh, his statements or his actions here except to try and address them because clearly what he is doing is trying to obstruct an investigation into obstruction. He's trying to obstruct an investigation into obstruction. John Nichols, readhimatthenation.com. Thank you, John. We really needed you today. Had fun, John. In a weird, awful way. It's the same old story. This is Trump Watch. I'm John Wiener, live in L.A. on KPFK, streaming at kpfk.org and online anytime you want it at trumpwatchpodcast.com. What can we do to reduce the speed of climate change? Bill McKibben was one of the first people to warn of the dangers of global warming 30 years ago with his book, The End of Nature. After that, he founded the environmental organization 350.org, and then he wrote 15 books and hundreds of articles and essays, many of them for The New Yorker, some for The Nation. He's also been teaching at Middlebury College in Vermont, and now he has a new book out. It's called Falter, Has the Human Game Begun to Play Itself Out? We reached him today in Washington, D.C. Bill McKibben, welcome back. Well, it's good to be with you as always. And not only am I in Washington, D.C., but in keeping with the spirit of the week, the publisher has me staying at the Watergate Hotel. So I I feel as if I'm completely in tune with the times and everything you're talking about. <laughs> I, that's a wonderful, wonderful thing. Um, your, your book, your, your new book, Falter, doesn't open with the big picture of global warming. It doesn't open with rising sea levels and species extinction and impending disaster. Instead, you start with roofing materials. Consider (laughs) the asphalt shingle, you say. Wow. So uh, what do we learn if we start by considering the asphalt shingle? 
Well, you know, the point that I was trying to make in those first few pages is what a complicated, diverse, complex, and in many ways remarkable game it is that humans have figured out how to play, that all the things we're doing are uh, 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 quite remarkable um, and quite vulnerable to disruption. Uh, You know, you could write about the things that really matter about sex and art and cooking and Instagram and uh, love and things, but, uh, you know, at least until I got warmed up, I still felt like roofs were a good place to start because they're the most mundane thing in the world, but they illustrate dramatically the million different steps and uh, uh, you know, uh, that you have to go through to do something even as, as mundane as put a roof on your house. And I, I think we underappreciate the vulnerability of the world that we have built. Um, I started sensing this 30, 30 years ago this year that I wrote The End of Nature, which was the first book about climate change. And at the time, it was almost impossible to get anyone to focus on the fact that the world's physical stability should not be taken for granted. Thirty years have passed, and that's, I'm afraid, now abundantly clear as we endure record storms, record floods, record fire, forest fires, record everything. Part of this book is about that, and part of it is about the new technologies that are now on the horizon that seem to me to level some pretty serious threats, too. The two that I really focus on uh, in the third part of the book are uh, human genetic engineering and very advanced forms of artificial intelligence, both which I think have a have some chance of uh, leeching the meaning out of or, or ending this uh, graceful... Uh, uh, dance that we call human civilization. Well, I want to stick with the asphalt shingle for one minute more because Mm. the asphalt in the asphalt shingle has to come from someplace, and the asphalt could be coming from the Alberta tar sands. Have you been to the Alberta tar sands? What's what's it like up there? I have. I describe them in the book. Um, Describe my experience there. It's the single ugliest scar probably on the face of the whole earth. Um, There's admittedly many places that vie for that, but I don't know if any place has quite managed it on the scale of the tar sands. No place that I've ever seen, and I've seen a lot. Um, You can see it without traveling there. Go look on Google Earth uh, in the area around Fort McMurray in the northern part of Alberta. And it just a desolation that stretches literally forever. Um, you know, um, not only is it foreboding looking, sort of Mordor like, huge uh, pool, the biggest dams on earth hold back the tailing ponds from the tar sands mining. Uh, not only does it look horrible, it sounds horrible the whole time you're there. Uh, because if a bird ever landed on those tailing ponds, it would die. There are cannons firing around the clock to try and scare them away uh, every few seconds. So you have the very strong sense that you're in a war zone and that nature is losing the war decisively. (laughs) Well, your new book, Falter, of course, says things are looking 
pretty bad for humans right now. But of course, there's an opposing school of thought, which you can find in a dozen books and a hundred TED Talks, that things are getting better. The whole world is getting better. There's less infant mortality today. Uh, people are living longer. More people are literate than have ever been liter literate before in the history of the world. Uh, of the 55 million people who died around the world in 2012, only 120,000 of them died in wars. This, of course, is the kind of view we associate with the Harvard psychologist Steven Pinker. He says... Uh, you know, people should be happy about everything that's happened that's so good. He says people like uh, you and I guess me just seem to, quote, bitch, moan, whine, carp, and kvetch. Steven Pinker is optimistic about our future, he says, because, and I'm going to quote now, so far humanity has made a lot of progress solving what seemed like intractable problems, close quote. What do you say to Steven Pinker? Well, yes. I mean, I, I engage with him a little bit in the book. That's where those quotes come from. And it's it's not that he's completely wrong. Um, we actually have made enormous progress on certain things over the last 30 or 40 years. Um, and that makes it all the more tragic that we're now seeing that, pro that progress begin to disappear in the wake of very rapid physical deterioration. I mean, in fact... Um, after several years, several maybe more than a decade of steady decline, the number of hungry people on Earth went up last year because of climate change and associated natural catastrophes. After a decade of fairly steady decline, the uh, incidence of child labor went up again last year because of climate change and other shocks like it that uh, inevitably end up with impoverished families putting kids to work. Um, and this, of course, if we keep on current trends, is only going to get worse, much worse. Uh, you know, so far, look what happened when, say, two million migrants left Syria in the, as a result of the civil war there, a civil war that, by the way, was triggered at least in part by the least worst drought in the history of what we once called the Fertile Crescent. Um, um, two million migrants leaving was enough to discombobulate the politics of, of Western Europe, just as uh, a smaller number of migrants leaving the drought-stricken highlands of Honduras and Guatemala have been enough to help discombobulate the politics of our country. Now, figure that the UN's low prediction for climate migrants by mid-century is 200 million, and their high prediction is a billion. So ask yourself, how much development, how much progress, how much anything we're going to be getting in a world like that. So we've said that uh, you wrote the first book on pretty much the same topic 30 years ago. That was The End of mm -hmm. Nature. I guess yeah. this book could have been called I Told You So, but uh, <laughs> you decided not to take that course. So it, it is striking that for 30 years we knew that climate change was coming, and a lot of people will tell you we did nothing. I'd like to look a little more closely at the we in that sentence. There's, there's you and me, and then there's the people who ran Exxon. Yeah, uh, look, the, the, uh, if, if you'd asked me 30 years ago, uh, one of the things I would not have expected was how slow we would be to react as civilizations. And for a while, that really perplexed me. 
It's come much clearer into focus in recent years. You know, as you know, great investigative reporting at places like the L.A. Times and the Pulitzer Prize-winning website Inside Climate News and Columbia Journalism School revealed over the last few years that the fossil fuel industry knew everything there was to know about climate change and knew it back in the 1980s, and that they believed what their scientists were telling them. I mean, Exxon started building all its drilling rigs to compensate for the rise in sea level it knew was coming. But, of course, the thing they didn't do was tell any of the rest of us. Just the opposite, uh, they spent billions of dollars building the architecture of deceit and denial and disinformation that has spread with relentless efficiency the lie that science was unsure about climate change. And you can measure the results of that lie by the fact that the man in the White House right now believes that climate change is a hoax manufactured by the Chinese, Mm. a a, a view so delusional that, you know, if someone started muttering it to you on a seated on a public bus, you'd get up and change seats, you know? Um, so that's where we are. I mean, that's how we've managed to wait. We've had a 30-year completely phony debate about whether global warming was real, a debate that both sides knew the answer to when it began. It's just one of them was content to lie about it in an effort to preserve its business model. Well, let's talk about what is to be done now to slow the pace of climate change. I know that uh, in Cambridge, Massachusetts, starting April 22nd, Harvard Heat Week is coming up. The goal of Harvard Heat Week is to put the heat on Harvard to divest from fossil fuels. Let's talk about Harvard uh, Heat Week and uh, the divestment movement. Right. Well, let's talk about the large climate landscape of which that's a one part. We're in a climate moment now. There's no question, and you can see it coming from all directions, whether it's the Extinction Rebellion that uh, brought traffic to a crawl in London uh, in recent days, whether it's the millions of school kids who are walking out of school following the lead of Greta Thunberg in Sweden, whether it's the young people pushing the Green New Deal here in this country with increasing success, uh, whether it's the divestment movement now sort of cresting, uh, we've reached the point where $8 trillion worth of endowments and portfolios uh, have divested in part or in whole from coal and oil and gas, and and to the point where it's really putting the hurt on the industry. There was a big story in Politico a couple of weeks ago about the heads of all the coal companies saying they could no longer raise capital. Uh, they just were not investment funds that were willing to give them money because they divested. And that's, you know, one more powerful part of this. It would be, of course, good if Harvard joined in, belated though they would be at this point, um, but it'll be good to be just raising the issue with the uh, rich, powerful, and out-of-touch people who run that institution. Well, there are some people who who wish that Exxon could change, who who think the logic uh, of of making money is that there's plenty of money to be made in alternative energy, and they wonder why don't the big oil and gas corporations decide that they should take the lead in alternative energy. Does Exxon have to hate solar panels? Well, the answer to that one is actually really interesting, I think. Um, 
yes, there's money to be made in the next energy future. People are going to get rich putting up solar panels. But there's not Exxon-scale money to be made. And if you think about it for a minute, you'll realize why. Um, once you get the solar panels up on the roof, <clears throat> the energy comes for free when the sun rises every morning. Good point. From Exxon's point of view, that's the stupidest business model you could imagine. <laughs> They've spent 100 years charging people more every month for what they get. So they've tried everything they can to beat back the rise of renewable energy, they and the utilities. Eventually they're going to lose. The price of wind and sun just keeps dropping and dropping and dropping and dropping. It's now the cheapest way to generate an electron in the world. And that's eroding the fossil fuel companies' power slowly. The trouble is slowly because we need it now to go quickly. Uh, 50 years from now, we're going to run the world on sun and wind. The question is, is it going to be a completely broken world that we're running on sun and wind, or will we have made the transition in time to avert the absolute worst possible outcomes? We're already going to be in some trouble. There's no stopping global warming. That's not one of the options on the menu, but there may be still some opportunity to slow it down. So let's talk, in, for as our last topic here, about how to find the right balance between uh, fear and hope. I know from everything you've said, everything you've written, you are not optimistic about the human game, but you do have reasons for hope. Uh, how do you balance these? Well, I mean, I think that uh, that you've got to get up and fight every morning. And I think the fact that there is this movement building is a very, very good sign. It's what I and others have worked hard for many years to build, and now we see it starting to come true. Um, and it's, you know, very good to see. I worry that we waited too long to get started sometimes and uh, that the momentum of climate change is very, very grave indeed. Um, but at least we're starting to engage the question now. Um, um, and what option does one have but to hope and to work hard uh, until the scientists tell us that there's no point in it anymore? And uh, we're not at that point yet. Uh, the best science indicates we have a window, albeit a fairly narrow one that's clearly closing rapidly, to still make some fundamental change. The IPCC in its report last September, gave us a 12, now 11-year timeline to have made fundamental transformations. That's why we've got no more presidential elections to waste and uh, you know, no more congressional cycles to waste and no more anything to waste. From now on in, we better be making the right decisions in sharp time. And, you know, some places are beginning to. New York City just in the last days passed the Green Deal for New York, a really ambitious piece of climate legislation in the world's financial capital. That's a good sign about where the smart money is starting to point. Let's hope we can make it happen fast enough. And we do have models of how to, cha how to bring big changes when the obstacles seem tremendous in the nonviolent protest movements of the 20th century. That's right. That's the other great technology along with solar panels. And so we are, you know, we're very, that's the greatest tool that we have. 
our job is to change the zeitgeist. The job of the fossil fuel industry is to keep everybody thinking that burning rocks from underground is the normal and obvious way to proceed, and our job is to make it so that people think it's not the obvious way to proceed, that there is a, a clear, better alternative, and that we can seize it and seize it fast. You've got to get up and fight every morning to change the zeitgeist. We're capable of acting together to do remarkable things. That's what Bill McKibben says in his new book, Falter, Has the Human Game Begun to Play Itself Out? It's a terrific book. Bill, thanks for everything you do, and thanks for talking with us. Back at you, brother. We'll look forward to the next time. Take care. Next up, activist and music maven Gary Stewart died last weekend. We'll remember him in a minute on KPFK when Trump Watch continues. It's a same old story. This is Trump Watch. I'm John Wiener, live in L.A. on KPFK, streaming at kpfk.org and online anytime you want it at trumpwatchpodcast.com. Coming up at four tonight on KPFK, rising up with Sonali. But first, we remember Gary Stewart. He died last Friday. Gary had a passion for community activism and social justice here in L.A., which led him to become the board chair of the Liberty Hill Foundation, which is where I met him, funding grassroots organizing in Los Angeles. Tori Osborne was the executive director. Sheila Kuehl was a board member. Uh, And then Gary became an advisory board member of LANE, the Los Angeles Alliance for a New Economy. Then he joined the board of directors of Community Coalition. He wanted to be part of the solution in addressing racism in America, and that meant starting in L.A., in South L.A. He urged the groups he worked with to think big and to be more radical. And everywhere he told activists and organizers, tell me how I can help. He was also a maven of popular culture, especially rock and roll. He was an executive at Rhino Records in the glory days of the CD box set. And then he was sort of the chief musical officer at iTunes when it first was launched by Apple and when the streaming of pop songs was becoming the standard way of getting your music. Recently, Gary was proudest of the compilation discs he put together with Elvis Costello, He worked closely with Elvis Costello and knew more about his music than just about anyone. He he was a guest on this show, mostly to talk about music rather than politics. One of my favorite shows we did was back in his Rhino days. It was a show about girl groups featured in a Rhino box set that he produced. Let's listen. This show was broadcast in 2005. Now it's time to talk about the Velvelettes, the Chiffons, the Flirtations, the Cookies, and the Iquettes, girl groups of the 60s. Raw emotion, youthful energy, and teenage angst are featured in a new 4-CD Rhino boxed set. It features some of the lesser-known but equally thrilling singles and b-sides of the era. It's called One Kiss Can Lead to Another, Girl Group Sounds Lost and Found. John Pirelli's of the New York Times wrote, To hear all these long-suffering voices is to realize that feminism didn't arrive an instant too soon. For some explanations, we turn to Gary Stewart. Gary, thanks for coming in today. Good to be back. 
So these are not the number one songs by the Supremes or the Shirelles or the Ronettes. What exactly is the idea of assembling 120 glorious examples of the lesser-known girl group hits? Well, Cheryl and I had worked together before on a number of girl group hit packages that have the expected tracks like Leader of the Pack, Chapel of Love, It's My Party, Shoop Shoop Song, In His Kiss... All great, all records that are definitive of the genre, but we did that twice, and we wanted to put this box set together. We still couldn't get the Ronettes, and we still couldn't get the Orlans, and we didn't think in 10 years people needed a third version of this. On the other hand, girl group music is a genre that is sort of pat on the head with a little isn't that cute attitude and narrow cast to five or six good records when in fact it runs deeper and wider than most people know, and in fact deeper and wider than even Cheryl and I knew, we were pretty big fans, and we started to dig into collections, singles, other fans and fanatics tapes, and found that there was just too many great sides that either couldn't fit on the radio, didn't fit on the radio, or didn't make it to people's ears or record collections beyond fanatics, and we wanted to rectify that. Well, you open this four CD sets, disc one, track one, with Needle in a Haystack by the Velvelettes from 1964. Tell us a little about this song. It is both a classic Motown record. By the way, it's written by the same guy that wrote Papa Was a Rolling Stone. And it's a classic girl group record. And when you said none of these songs get played on the radio, it's true. Needle in a Haystack used to. A handful of these songs were oldies hits, but oldies radio has even become narrow cast so that the Supremes are down to five songs and the Velvelettes are down to zero. So they were just one of the early Motown bands before the quote-unquote Motown sound was established, they really were a haven for soul pop girl groups like the Marvelettes, Martha Reeves, the early Mary Wells records, and we think this is one of the best. The glorious hand claps and singing of the Velvelette's Needle in a Haystack from 1964. We definitely wanted to celebrate the fun and, quote, unquote, the kitsch, the cuteness. But inside, we want this music to be taken a little bit more seriously. A lot of these artists didn't find a way to write or produce or really have any power. So they had to kind of cram their soul in as a session singer into those two and a half minutes of drama. And we also want this music to be seen as valid as, say, like rockabilly or 60s soul and not looked at as prom rock or nostalgia or cute pop. But we're not trying to pretend that this is Emerson, Lake, and Palmer. On the other hand, we want people to know that there's more substance and there's more going on in those two minutes than there are in some 10-minute records that come out today. So next up, we're going to listen to the Chiffons' Nobody Knows What's Going On in My Mind But Me from 1965. This was a real eye-opener to me, and Gary, I know it was number one on your <laughs> list of favorites. Why is that? Again, it's one of the records that we built the box around. Is I had only discovered this like three or four years ago. I love He's So Fine and One Fine Day and the other Chiffons hits. But this is what I think can be only termed as the first and best psychedelic girl group record, and it shows how 
this music, like folk rock or pop or British Invasion, was quickly evolving. And it's nothing you'd expect when you hear girl groups or the chiffons. And I would say every bit is good, if not better, than their two classic pop rock hits. It's also written by a guy who goes by the nickname of Brute Force. This is before <laughs> the age of pro wrestling and showmanship and heavy metal. Brute Force wrote a girl group record. Nobody knows what's going on in my mind but me, the chiffons from 1965. Everybody says he's no good, but what do they know? The chiffons, <laughs> nobody knows what's going on in my mind. The first and only psychedelic girl group sound. It's on the new Rhino 4-CD box set. One kiss can lead to another girl group sounds lost and found. Next, we want to move right on to the flirtations. Nothing but a heartache. It's like the best Supremes record you've never heard. Mm. All right, nothing but heartache. The flirtations from 1968. <laughs> Supreme song you never heard, The Flirtations, Nothing But a Heartache from 1968. What a sound. The Cookies. If you heard the song Chains by the Beatles on one of their early records, that's a cover of a cookie song. Well, let's listen now to The Cookies from 1964, I Never Dreamed.
Gloria Sound with the Cookies from 1964, I Never Dreamed. Let's talk a little bit about the business of girl groups. We've mostly focused on the sound here, but part of the reason there is a genre is that it was an important part of the business and a kind of a routine part of the business of pop music in the mid-60s. You know, what I noticed is the business, it was more than a bit of an assembly line, but A, so was Motown. B, so were the great records by the Monkees, and C, so was Tin Pan Alley. A lot of great music can come from commerce and a production line. Some of it still does today, although not most of it. But in the midst of that, especially the last three records, you take subjects that might seem okay or you might seem ordinary, and the singers make it seem like these things are a matter of life and death. You listen to that voice on I Never Dreamed. It's just like everything that matters to her in the world are in those two or three lines. And I think that the constraints of the business, because most of these artists were not treated well, they weren't given royalties, they didn't have a longevity, they were cast aside when the British invasion came out and they really weren't set up to win before, really all they had were the chance to pour their heart and soul in these records, and they're much more than cute little pop novelties. Most of this is recorded music. You said some of these were never performed live at all, but there was a live performance circuit for girl group. Usually for only two or three songs because they were part of a review. Mm -hmm. If you saw the movie That Thing You Do, which I think is one of the best films to capture that time in music, that pre-during Beatles, a number of the bands on that cavalcade are styled after girl groups, and it's the same thing. They came up, they got in their costumes, makeup, did their hit, maybe what was going to be their next hit, and that was it. And again, we're not taken seriously as rock or soul or performers, and what I realized three weeks ago was what a shame. Well, we have time for just one more, and it's my personal choice, the Iquette song titled I'm Blue from 1961. Not your typical girl group or girl group song. Say what you will about Ike, but he sure did bring a lot of great songs and productions to the table, and this is one of them. The great challenge of this song for people who know it is being able to say gong, 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 gong. Gibberish is important in rock and roll, by the way. The Iquettes from 1961. The song is called I'm Blue. Cats from 1961. The song is called I'm Blue. I'm sorry to say our time is up. We've been talking about raw emotion, youthful energy, and teenage angst on a glorious new four CD box set from Rhino. It's called One Kiss Can Lead to Another Girl Group Sounds Lost and Found. We've been talking with Gary Stewart. Gary, thanks for coming in. Thanks for having me, and fear not the obscure. Gary Stewart on our show in 2005.
music maven and community organizer. He died on Friday. Harold Meyerson wrote, Gary knew that justice required skilled organizers, activists, and troublemakers. So he funded activists and he made troublemakers. He was the sweetest troublemaker L.A. has ever known. The city was damned lucky to have had him. that's it for today's Trump Watch. I want to thank my other guest, Bill McKibben. His new book is Falter, Has the Human Game Begun to Play Itself Out? We also spoke with John Nichols. Thanks to our engineer, Gary Baca. Thanks to our producer, Renee Reynolds. Thanks, as always, to Rye Cooter for our theme music, Mambo Sinuendo. Coming up at 4 tonight on KPFK, Rising Up with Sonali. Trump Watch returns next week at the same time on this same station with more talk about what Trump is actually doing, not just what he's tweeting. I'm John Wiener. Thanks for listening.